Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and my special guest today is C. Bradley Thompson. Bradley Thompson is a professor of political science at Clemson University and the executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. He writes regularly for his substack, which I love the title, called the Redneck Intellectual, and he is the author of John Adams and the Spirit of Liberty, Neoconservatism, an Obituary for an Idea, and the topic of today's conversation, America's Revolutionary Mind, a moral history of the American Revolution and the declaration that defined it. Brad, thanks for joining me. Doug, thanks very much for having me on. So we're launching 2022 basically with your episode here, and I kind of timed it that way on purpose because the last two years or so with the pandemic and a lot of current events that have brought to light things like critical race theory and a lot of ideologies that question the liberal ideas of the founding generation uh, have been pretty prominent in in the news. And, and I think you've probably seen that as well. And I actually gave I actually gave critical race theory a fair shake and read a little bit about it by some from somebody uh, or books recommended by somebody that was um that I trusted would said, hey, this is a fair shake on it. And I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, okay, I see your concerns, but nope, I'm I'm a liberal in the founding generation sort of way of thinking about liberty and equality. And when I was sort of reading some of these things, your book came across, uh, someone else was reading it that I know was reading your book and I was like, ah, I got to read that book. So listen to the audio book and I'm just like, yep, yep, yep. This is, these are the ideals that I value. We're going to talk a little bit about those, but I know that there are people out there who are into history, and this is not just a book about history. This is a book about a moral revolution. So I'll give you the opportunity to sort of tell us what sets your book apart, what makes this a little bit uh, new, uh, different angle to it. Yeah, so... I think the most important thing to say is that this book is a moral history of the American Revolution, and there has never been a moral history uh, of, of the American Revolution. It, it is the first uh, in that genre, and you and your audience, I'm sure, know that there are probably more books written about the American Revolution than any other topic in American history, and there are social, political, religious diplomatic, constitutional, even environmental histories of the American Revolution, but there had never been a moral history of the American Revolution. And so I think that more than anything else is what distinguishes it from all other histories of the American Revolution. What does it mean to say it's a moral history? Yeah, so I took as my starting point a well-known line from a letter that John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson after they had retired in the 18-teens. And John Adams, in his letter to Jefferson, asked what I think is the ultimate question. What do we mean by the revolution? And his answer, his rhetorical answer to his own question was that we don't mean the war. He said the war was not a part of the revolution. Rather, he said 
the war was an effect or a consequence uh, of the revolution. And the true revolution, he said, was in the minds of the people. And he described that intellectual revolution in the minds of the American people as a moral revolution. And what he meant was that in the 15 years before he said a shot was fired at Lexington or Concord, he said there had been this intellectual slash moral revolution. So Adams is actually dating the beginning of the American Revolution to approximately 1760, which is a few years before we most historians typically date the beginning of the revolution, which would be 1764 with either the, you know, the Sugar Act or 1765 with the Stamp Act. And Adams is saying, no, it's back around 1760. And what happened during this period? Well, what happened during this period is that British imperial officials began to impose their political will on the American people. Uh, in 17 and 1760, they, they tried to establish what were called writs of assistance on colonial commerce. Um, and a writ of assistance is like a search warrant. And these were unlimited search warrants that were open, completely open-ended. And there was a famous court trial in 1761 uh, led by James Otis and John Adams attended when, in fact, he was the assistant to James Otis. And it was there that James Otis fired what we might call the first intellectual shots of the American Revolution. And it was all based on the idea of rights. So at the heart of the American Revolution, uh, this revolution in the minds of the American people was a transformation in the way they thought about the question of rights. Like, you know, what are rights? And up until that point, most Americans were good Englishmen. They spoke and they wrote about the so-called rights of Englishmen. But in 17, beginning in 1765 with the passage of the Stamp Act, they realized that the so-called rights of Englishmen did not apply to them as colonists living in the New World. So they looked for a, for a deeper and a more permanent foundation on which to base their rights. And it could not be the rights of Englishmen because the rights of Englishmen are the rights of a particular people at a particular place at a particular time. And American revolutionaries wanted to ground their rights, not in history, but rather in nature. They wanted to establish rights that were absolute, certain, permanent, and universal. And the grounding of those rights had to be in nature. So from Adams's perspective, at least, that's what made the American Revolution so unique in world history, because it was first and foremost a moral revolution. And of course, that moral revolution is summed up in the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The Enlightenment really plays a role here because those ideas that you want to come up with like universal laws of nature or discern what they are as opposed to like historical, you know, Englishman rights like you just talked about. Explain a little bit about how the Enlightenment was sort of a precursor or played a foundational role. Absolutely. There's no question that it did. And I would argue that American revolutionaries, by whom I principally mean John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Wilson, James Madison, they were all influenced, deeply influenced 
by the ideas that had come over to the American colonies uh, from Europe, but more particularly from Great Britain, the ideas in particular of the 17th century English Enlightenment and the great thinkers, uh, the great philosophers uh, of the 17th century English Enlightenment were Sir Francis Bacon, whose most famous work that influenced the founders was his Novum Organum, and then Sir Isaac Newton, uh, whose work, uh, the Principia Mathematica, changed the way that they thought about the nature of reality, the nature of the universe. Newton, of course, discovered the so-called physical or scientific laws of nature. And once the Americans were exposed to Bacon's and Newton's ideas, it really played a role in reorienting the way they thought about the nature of nature, we might say. And then the third, and without question, the most important Enlightenment philosopher to influence colonial Americans in the 18th century was the late 17th century English philosopher John Locke, who was most famous for having written two great treatises. And the first was called The uh, Essay Concerning Human Understanding. And then the second, and this is the one that most everybody knows, of course, which was his Second Treatise of Government. And the Second Treatise of Government was effectively a handbook for revolution. As you know from having read the book, one of my principal claims, and it's not original to me, I mean, this is the standard uh, interpretation of the American Revolution, and it has been for, well, virtually, literally from the beginning of the revolution itself, that Locke's Second Treatise of Government provided the intellectual ammunition for the colonists in their battle against what we might call the British deep state, against all of these laws that were being passed by the British parliament against the Americans. And the principles of Locke's second treatise are essentially all summed up in the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. So the second sentence, of course, which is the famous second sentence, begins We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, uh, among which are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall most... Uh, seem likely to affect their safety and happiness. Right. So what that means, that's one sentence. It's a very long sentence, to be sure. But that one sentence establishes four truths, which can be summed up each in one word, equality, rights, consent, and revolution. And those are the principles at the heart of Locke's Second Treatise of Government. The Declaration of Independence is, in effect, a precis of Locke's second treatise of government. There's simply no question that that Enlightenment philosophy, but more particularly the Enlightenment philosophy of of 17th century England provided the the primary intellectual ammunition for American revolutionaries as they contested with British imperial officials. 
One thing that really kept me attuned to the content of your book was that you used the Declaration of Independence as a roadmap for going through the entire book. And in a way, you know, I, this is probably not doing it justice in any way, but it seems like you're do, this whole book is like an exegetical historical background of the Declaration itself, where, you know, I could go to a particular chapter and be like, oh, the pursuit of happiness, this is what the founders thought about this phrase and how they came up with it and what it meant in their context and, and why it was so important. That was a really helpful thing for me as I'm, you know, I'm listening to this book and I think it was, I think it's like an eight or nine hour listen. And so mentally, I knew where I was in sort of the explanation and exploration of this moral history. So I don't know if you want to say any more on that. Like, why did you choose the declaration, I mean, it's almost an obvious answer, but I can give you a little time to elaborate on why the declaration was in and of itself, like the roadmap you were able to use. Yeah. So it's interesting, Doug, because my original idea, in fact, I had no plan to write this book. I was actually in the middle of writing a different book. And this other book, which is now going to be the second volume of what's going to be a trilogy that I'm going, that I'm writing on the American founding, I was writing a book that will be called America's Constitutional Mind. And I was in the middle of it, and I was going to write one chapter on the idea and role of rights in the development of the idea of a written constitution as fundamental law uh, in American history. And so I started working on this chapter on the role of rights and and really was going to focus on the Declaration of Independence. And I read a book by a Harvard professor on the Declaration of Independence in June of, I guess it must have been 2017, maybe. And I was so appalled by this book and so angry by its argument that I decided then and there that I was going to put this other book, America's Constitutional Mind, I was going to put it down and take a break and write a very short book on the Declaration of Independence as a response to this book by the Harvard professor. And a month into this book, it just, the the whole idea was just sort of exploded in my mind that what I'm really doing is not writing a book simply on the Declaration of Independence, but I'm really writing a book on the American Revolution, the revolution described by John Adams. So what the book does, and you're absolutely right to say that I use the Declaration of Independence as a roadmap to understanding the revolution as a whole. So what does that mean? So what it means is I take the four self-evident truths of the Declaration, equality, rights, consent, and revolution. And I write in the book, I've written two chapters on each of these four self-evident truths. And in the two chapters for each of the four self-evident truths, I essentially give a kind of intellectual, political, constitutional history of each one of these self-evident truths. So the Declaration and the four self-evident truths They provide essentially the framework or the spine of the book as a whole. So take equality, for instance, two chapters devoted to the the self-evident truth of equality. And I trace how that idea was developed beginning in the late 17th century, particularly in the ideas of John Locke. And then I trace 
how Locke's idea of revolution then crossed the Atlantic and then essentially percolated down and through 18th century American culture uh, and, and how it was then picked up in the middle decades of the 18th century, which then provides the groundwork for American revolutionaries once the battle with, with the, the British Parliament started. And then I do the same with the concept or the principle of rights, natural rights. Uh, same process, go back to Locke, start with Locke, trace the idea of natural rights from Locke up to the revolution and through the revolution, and then the same with consent, and then finally with the idea of revolution itself. So yes, the Declaration provides a roadmap and a structure for me really to study the revolution, the intellectual revolution, the moral revolution as a whole. Well, I'm really glad that that Harvard professor, you know, instigated this book. Because <laughs> it was, it was, it, man, I, I just, I'm going to like gush here for a second, but like, I haven't heard these ideas in such a way that it made me more proud to be American. I want to say to be an American, but to inherit the American mind, which is a phrase, you know, that's the title of the book. So there's this way in which I feel like Americans should think, and, and I want to talk about this a little bit later, that I think is in trouble. Anyway, I I have felt that the that the current culture has sort of lost this mind and mindset. And I'll have you comment on that a little bit later. But one way that you've actually dedicated a whole chapter to equality is a chapter on slavery. And this is a very important topic, you know, to me, and it's probably the most thorough treatment of how did the founding fathers, how how did the founding generation think about slavery, especially people like Jefferson, who could have made different decisions, yet he still held slaves. Yet he wrote, it was the principal writer of the Declaration. You say something in the chapter talking about equality and slavery, and a lot of people who are on the side of, you know, sort of the positive, hey, the founding generation did a really great thing, et cetera, uh, sort of lets them off the hook because, oh, well, they were just trapped by their biases. But you're saying, you say in the book that that's not, that's not quite fair to them. It's not also fair to make a proper judgment of their actions. So I'd love for you, for you to speak a little bit more to what is the best way to sort of assess the founding generation's view of slavery while also writing and having in their revolutionary mind this principle of equality of all people. Yeah, so it's very interesting, Doug, I originally did not intend to write a chapter on equality and slavery. And it wasn't until very end in the process of writing this book that I realized, you know, I can't write uh, an entire book on the Declaration of Independence and on the revolution and, you know, focusing on equality and not take up the issue of slavery. So I think, if I recall, it was almost the last chapter that I wrote, although it appears relatively early in the book, it's, it's, I believe, chapter five in the book out of 11 or 12 chapters. And so it was, it was written at the very end of the process and it was written. I don't, I don't want to say as an, as an afterthought, that's, that's not the case, but I just had no intention of, of writing it in, in when I first set out uh, on, on this journey. But what's, what's been most interesting is that that one chapter, which I did not intend to write, has 
become the chapter that everybody wants to talk about. So I think since this, since the book has been published, it's been out now for two years, I, and I believe I've given over 85 TV, radio, and podcast interviews. And virtually every interview that I've done is spent mostly talking about this one chapter in the book. Um, it's, it, it's kind of fascinating. And of course, you know, there are real reasons why, why that's been the case, because, uh, you know, as you know, the 1619 project and now critical race theory, mm-hmm. these are the things that are being taught in America's government schools and in our colleges and universities. And it is the issue du jour. It's the issue of our time. This is what everybody's talking mm-hmm. about. And, and so, in fact, that's what's happened in, in all of the interviews that I've done. So it's, I guess the first thing to say is that this is a very complex topic. And I didn't want to write a chapter that was either, you know, rah, rah, they did nothing wrong, nor on the other hand, I didn't want to simply condemn out of hand the revolutionaries' views on, on, uh, on slavery. There are a number of things that have to be said in talking about this issue, though. The first is that every single founding father, whether they were slave owners or not slave owners, every single one believed that slavery was a necessary evil. And the emphasis has to be put on the word evil. They understood, all of them, all, all slaveholders understood slavery to be an, a moral evil. But the key word here, or, or the, the, the interesting word is necessary. Why necessary? Why did they consider it to be a necessary evil? Now, let me just preface my answer to that, though, by also telling you and, and your audience that the founding, there was a range of views amongst the founding fathers. There were some, for instance, like John Adams, who simply, and these would have been mostly Northerners from New England, they condemned slavery just simply as an evil. They never owned slaves, and they judged it as evil. And then there were those founding fathers who, like, for instance, Benjamin Franklin or John Jay, as young men, they held slaves, and they lived in Philadelphia and in New York City, and they held what were called house slaves. They owned one or two slaves, and they worked as servants. But they eventually released their slaves and then became leaders of the anti-slavery movement. They helped to found anti-slavery societies. And then you get those founding fathers like George Washington, for instance, who, yes, was a slave owner, a plantation owner, and, and, and a relatively large slave owner who recognized slavery as a necessary evil, but then gave up his slaves uh, upon his death. But then you get the really hard case, right? And I spend most of the chapter or much of the chapter talking about people like Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson. And obviously Jefferson, well, both Jefferson and Henry are the most complex to deal with. Patrick Henry, the man who said, give me liberty or give me death, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, all men are created equal. The question obviously is, how could such men who held such principles and who fought in the name of of liberty, how could they be slave owners, right? This is the great paradox. This is 
this is what we, we, we need to try and understand. Uh, and this goes back to the, the answer to the question goes back to what they understood by this notion of slavery as a necessary evil. The question is why necessary? The fact of the matter is they knew, right, that slavery was an institution, though evil, they had nevertheless inherited. And the question is, what do you do about an institution which if you were to abolish, you, you know slavery is wrong, your strong preference would be to abolish slavery if you could, but you can't figure out a way to do it in, a, in such a way that it would not cause a massive social dislocation and almost certainly, at least in some places, a kind of race war. And this is what I call the post-emancipation problem. Yes, they, they were all favor, in favor, at least in theory, of emancipation, but they didn't know how to do it in practice. They didn't. And Thomas Jefferson once famously said, we have the wolf by the ears and we don't know whether to hold on or let go. And this, I think, essentially sums up the view of many founders like Jefferson and Henry, who, who wanted to let go, who wanted to let go of slavery but feared if they did that not only would their own obvious their their own financial well-being be harmed but that it would cause much much greater social chaos if not a, a kind of civil war so they just they didn't know how to do it all right now the last thing i want to say on this however is it is absolutely and critically important that we understand what I think is the single most important fact about the American Revolution and its relationship to slavery. And that is, there's no question that the American Revolution, and more specifically, the principles contained in the Declaration of Independence, are the single most important cause for the eventual abolition of slavery. Immediately after the passage of the Declaration of Independence, Every state in the North began a process of gradually emancipating their slaves. Now, it, it took upwards of 25 years, but every single state in the North attempted, uh, well, not attempted, they attempted and they accomplished this gradual yeah. abolition of slavery. And then on the national level, the founders in the Northwest ordinance forbade uh, the establishment of slavery in the Northwest uh, Territory. And then in the Constitution uh, itself, they barred the international trade, uh, international slave trade after the year 1808. So there's no question that the revolution was the inspiration for the anti-slavery movement and then the eventual abolition of slavery. And the abolitionists of the 1830s, you know, like William Lloyd Garrison, they took the principles of the Declaration as their primary inspiration for the abolitionist movement. And I think that is what's, that is the, the single most important uh, thing to say about the whole question of the American Revolution and the institution of slavery. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, you'll like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Norman, Doug, Aaron, and others analyze the news from a libertarian Christian perspective. 
check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. You made this comment in your chapter there, talking about slavery, is that the first intellectual defense of chattel slavery was not during the American Revolution, but it wasn't until the 1830s? Yes. That was a really shocking fact to me, because, you know, I hear about the, um, from leftists, they talk about how, you know, well, hey, we need to have these kinds of rights because, you know, they were wrong about slavery. And look at how terrible the Bible was used to, you know, defend slavery and all of this. I just didn't know that, that it wasn't until later that the institution was more defended than it was during the period of the revolution. Right. So this is one of the great and in certain ways sad ironies of American history. So as I said a few minutes ago, all of the founding fathers regarded slavery to be a necessary evil. It's not until the 1830s, however, that you get the rise of what would come to be the, what, what's called the quote, positive good theory of slavery. So it went from, you know, over the course of, of 40 or 50 years, Americans went from viewing slavery as a necessary evil to in the 1830s, the late 1830s, in the South regarding slavery, or at least some in the South held slavery to be, quote, a positive good. Now, the paradox, and, and in certain ways, the cause of the rise of the so-called positive good theory of slavery was in response to the rise of the abolitionist movement. So there was no positive good theory of slavery until you get the rise of the abolitionist movement in the early 1830s. And the abolitionist movement, which was a much, much more radical version of the larger anti-slavery movement, uh, the abolitionist movement, as I said a minute ago, were motivated by the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And their position was, their slogan was immediate emancipation immediately begun. So they opposed the idea of gradual emancipation, which all, all of the founding fathers supported. They all supported gradual emancipation. The abolitionists, though, supported immediate emancipation, immediately begun. And with that new principle uh, injected into the lifeblood of American thought and culture, you then get a reaction from Southerners. And the reaction is now, for the first time, to publicly defend the institution of slavery, and not as a necessary evil, but as a positive good. And, and, and I mean, the greatest irony of all in, in, in this, of course, is that with the rise of the positive good theory uh, of slavery, you also get in the South the rise of, a move, of the movement um, against the principles of the Declaration of Independence, which is to say the first real critics of the principles of the Declaration of Independence and of the American Revolution were pro-slavery Southerners, right? And many of the arguments that you see today in the 1619 Project and in critical race theory were actually first developed by white pro-slavery Southerners in the late 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, it's, 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 it's actually stunning, right? All of the, the arguments that you hear on college campuses today 
against the principles of the Declaration of Independence. All of them have as their, as their origin or place of origin pro-slavery thought. How, I mean, how perverse, <laughs> how perverse and ironic is that? I remember listening to your book and I, I vividly remember pausing and saying, wait, what? Like that connection you just spelled, you know, made for us, you elaborate on it more in the book and, and it, it sort of leads you there in the, in the way that you talk about slavery. It's on the one hand, not surprising because whenever you abandon the principles of the declaration, you kind of end up there. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's important. It's really important to note that America was founded on the basis of certain self-evident truths. And the key word is truths, right? And American revolutionaries viewed the idea of truth as absolute, certain, permanent, and universal. And pro-slavery Southerners, in their critique of the principles of the Declaration, began by undermining the idea of truth, the idea of truth as absolute, permanent, and universal. And they developed drawing on uh, 19th century German philosophy, particularly out of the, out of the so-called Hegelian school, the followers of the German, 19th century German philosopher Hegel. They developed this idea of historicism, the idea that there are no permanent, absolute, universal truths, that all truth is historically relative. And that was the deepest uh, critique that these pro-slavery Southerners offered of the Declaration in the 1840s and 1850s. And what's interesting, of course, is that this idea that truth is historically relative to time and place, that is the reigning intellectual orthodoxy of the world in which we live today. It's no surprise that in 2016, the, I, I believe it was the Oxford English Dictionary named uh, as its uh, word of the year, post-truth, right? And at least in America's universities, we live in a post-truth world, which is to say there are no truths, absolute, permanent, and universal. All truth is relative to time and place. Um, and I think that, that one of the most, I, I, I would say that in certain ways, maybe the single most important thing that I tried to do in the book is to defend, well, first to present, honestly, uh, the founders' view of truth, and then to defend that view of truth. Because I think that's the thing which is most needed in our world today. I mean, all of these other issues, questions, you know, the, the questions raised by the 1619 Project, those are, those are important, but they are superficial issues. The deepest philosophic issue connected to the revolution is, is this. Is it true or not true? Period. Is it, are the truths presented in the Declaration true? That's the battle that has to be fought. And that's what I attempted to do in America's revolutionary mind. So are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Your book was published before the COVID pandemic. And, you know, we've seen what we've seen over the past few years and the way that truth has sort of faded as a value. And, you know, I have been lamenting over and over on this podcast and in other venues that LCI has published that there is no value of things like 
free speech, property rights, and some of the things that weren't necessarily the founding generation, but they came into the Declaration or the into the Constitution over time. Those things are kind of just fallen by the wayside. And so when you argue with people about, well, the founding fathers think, people don't really care. So whether or not they care about what the founding fathers think, the question, like you just said, is like, well, are these things true? Are you optimistic? How do you assess the current state? Well, that that's a hard <laughs> question to answer. So on the one hand, there's no question. Things have never been as dire morally, intellectually, politically as they are today. I mean, certainly not in my lifetime. Uh, I started college in 1978. And today, the intellectual environment on college campuses is almost unrecognizable compared to what it was when I started in 1978. And when I started in 1978, it was bad. And today, it's, it's beyond the pale. And if you believe, as I do, that ideas have consequences, and if you believe that, you know, economics is downstream from politics and politics is downstream from culture and culture is downstream from the ideas generated in America's universities, you can't be anything, I think, other than pessimistic about the future of of this country. But on the other hand, I can't live my life like that. None of us can live our lives in a state yeah. of radical, permanent pessimism. You, you can't do that. I'm a father of three, and I get up, I fight every single day for the future of my children. I can't live in this state of permanent pessimism. But I will say, however, despite everything that I have just said, no matter how bad things are, there are glimmers of genuine hope in this country. The most, the single most important of which is homeschooling. Homeschooling is the revolution and America's homeschooling mothers are the leaders of the revolution. And as I'm sure you and your audience know, homeschooling has exploded. Uh, it's been growing steadily since the, 19, uh, since the mid to late 1990s. But just in the last two years, it has absolutely exploded. I mean, numbers, uh, homeschooling numbers have have tripled and quadrupled. And, you know, they, they have more than quadrupled, for instance, in the black neighborhood. Black Americans are now the largest percentage of people based on race or ethnicity who are now homeschooling are American blacks. I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary phenomenon. So homeschooling is the revolution. But let me add one other thing, which is now feeding the growth of homeschooling. And that is ordinary, everyday American parents, particularly America's mothers, are fed up with the government schools, right? And we have seen this over the course of the last year. Uh, all of these so-called domestic terrorists, as designated by the Biden administration and Merrick Garland, all in, which is to say all of these ordinary, everyday American, principally moms, have been showing up to school board meetings and fighting the education deep state. Um, and But more specifically, what they're doing is they're leaving the government schools now in droves. Um, and I have started uh, a new website, um, which I hope you and your, your, your listeners will go to. 
It's called edwatchdaily.com. That's all one word, edwatchdaily.com. And uh, the motto of edwatchdaily is hashtag just walk away. And what we're trying to do at EdWatch Daily is to lead a revolution of ordinary, everyday Americans to leave the government schools, which are the single most immoral institution in the United States, and to either homeschool uh, or to, you know, create micro schools um, or send their, send their kids to private schools. Um, and that is happening. So at this moment here now today, uh, there's lots to be pessimistic about, but there there are genuine glimmers of of hope for the future, and that's what I live my life on. It's those glimmers of hope. Well, I think our listeners would be happy to hear uh, you you know plug the the value of the revolution of homeschooling because I know a lot of our listeners uh, homeschool. Uh, my wife and I have homeschooled our kids. So yeah, I definitely align with that, and you're totally right that there's been an explosion. I mentioned your Substack earlier, uh, the Redneck Intellectual. Where else can people find you online? Yeah, so the Redneck Intellectual is at cbradleythompson.substack.com. Um, and that's where I'm doing all of my writing. So if you go there today, I just I just launched, uh, I just published today, in fact, a couple hours ago, um, a longish essay um, titled Parental Rights Defined and Defended. And it's actually the sixth essay in a series of essays uh, defending per, uh, parental rights. Um, and I'm going to be writing a, a couple of more essays on parental rights. And, uh, and then I'm going to be turning to the, children, to the issue of children's rights, because I regard this whole question of how we educate our children uh, and the right uh, that parents have to determine how uh, and by whom their children should be educated, it is the fundamental issue of our time. So, um, yeah, so your if, if your audience wants to go to uh, the Redneck Intellectual, they can see my essays there. Um, I also have um, a website, uh, which I'm not sure I remember the URL for. It's all right. I'll put it in the show notes page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, you should also, by the way, if any of the parents in the audience listening to this show are interested, if you have a high, if you have high school students who are interested in going to university that offers a great books approach to the history of liberty, capitalism, the American founding, and the principles of moral character, please check out the Lyceum Scholars Program, which is uh, run by uh, the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, of which I'm the executive director. And all of this is at Clemson University. Excellent. Well, I uh, really appreciate you coming on to talk about your book. I and of course the ideas behind it. I recommend this to every listener. This is just a, a thorough history of the. It's a thorough moral history, and I really uh, appreciated the book and and our conversation. Doug, it's been fun to be with you and your audience today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.